Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown, the show where one of my writers, in this case Ilza, thank you Ilza, has written me a script, The Lost Minds of King Solomon. I know nothing about this, except I feel like this would be the plot of an Indiana Jones movie. Uh, it's like looking for mines, that kind of stuff. I, uh, I haven't seen Indiana Jones since I was a kid. I saw that new one with the crystal skulls and the alien crystals, something like that, right? With, uh, that kid, Just Do It Kid, Shia LaBeouf, it was a bit rubbish, to be honest. <laughs> I remember enjoying the other ones when I was a kid and kind of being traumatized. It's Indiana Jones, right, where they're eating the, like, the monkey brains. Oh, no, no, no! It's Indiana Jones where there's a snake and they cut open the snake and there are all these little snakes inside and they eat the little baby snakes. Is that Indiana Jones? Because I remember being traumatized by that shit as a kid. And oh, I'd love to know what that, that movie is. There was another movie I remember seeing where there was an elevator shaft and a man fell down. Like, they had an elevator. I think it was a James Bond movie. And the bottom of the elevator opens up, like, and he falls to his death on some spikes below. And I remember seeing that. I must have been like, I was really young. I was definitely really young. And I just remember being traumatized about that, being afraid of elevators for ages. <laughs> Still slightly afraid of elevators. It's childhood trauma for you. Let's jump into it. Thank you, everybody, for being here. What's going on? <laughs> get on with it, Simon. I was fairly young when I first came across the story of King Solomon's Mines. It had all the hallmarks of an Indiana Jones movie, exactly. Minus those bloody n- Oh, God. How far are we in? One minute forty. <laughs> Whoever's editing this, can you please bleep out- because if it's like this early in the video, I might get demonetized. Let's just bleep that out. All right. Thank you. Oh, God. Now I've said like seven times. So I'm sorry. I'm making so much work for everybody. I'm literally not competent. In the version of the tale I heard, the mines were located somewhere in Zimbabwe and were either full of gold just waiting to be discovered, or in the most fanciful tales, it wasn't just the source of King Solomon's wealth, but also his final resting place. Is it bad? I don't know who King Solomon is. He's a Bible dude, right? He's a dude from the Bible. Let's let's see. I assume this is going to get explained, so I'm just revealing my ignorance right now. Well, that's why we make these channels, isn't it? So I can learn something. Learn or someone will be like, Simon, you made a biographics episode about King Solomon. I mean, oh, for God's sake, I never learned anything. <laughs> All the treasures and wealth of King Solomon and Jerusalem somehow made it back to where it initially came from and is still waiting somewhere in the dark for some adventurer with a fedora and a whip to the biggest jackpot of their life. How all that treasure managed to get from Jerusalem all the way to Zimbabwe strangely never came up. Of course, if you've watched our video on Agatha, and if you haven't, you really should, the writer did a great job. King Solomon's mines are also the entrance to the Hollow Earth. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> great, okay. Yeah, no, it's not, because the Hollow Earth isn't real. It's not real. It should just be called Conspiracy Debunking with Fact Boy. Apparently, except when we did the JFK episode, which I assume will have got out by now, where it wasn't like, hey, are we going to debunk this conspiracy? Which, no, Simon ended the episode believing in it. <laughs> Apparently, all of these unsolved mysteries were written by the same author, and they started running out of ideas. So, are the lost minds of King Solomon real, and if so, where are they? Let's see if we can decode this mystery, Ilza. Let's find out where it is. Let's go get all that gold. <laughs> We don't have to do this anymore. Finally can retire. Brilliant. No, I like doing this. I like doing this. I don't know what I'd do if I was retired. I guess I'd stay home, spend a lot of time with my family, and then I'd be like, okay, this is fine. I mean, I love my family and all that, but I also like working. I like making videos and stuff. It's like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what I'd do if I'd retire. I, and I guess I'd retire like when the kids are left home and then I'd be like, okay, what should I do? <laughs> Take up a hobby? Maybe make some videos? The story of King Solomon's Mines. 
The main source for the tale of King Solomon's Mines is a book, unsurprisingly named King Solomon's Mines, by English writer H. Ryder Haggard, published in 1885. Henry Ryder Haggard was born in 1856 in the UK. In 1875, he left for South Africa and worked in various minor positions for the British colonial administration in both Natal and Transvaal. I'm guessing that was about as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> What do you do? I'm a low-level administrator in the colonial administration. This sounds pretty boring. Eventually, he returned to Britain and wrote 56 novels, making a fairly good living. That sounds a lot more interesting than it's like. What we? That's that's great. That's a change of career, isn't it? Good for you. The book tells the story of two British gentlemen, Sir Henry Curtis and his friend Captain John Good, who travel to South Africa in search of Henry's missing brother, George. Arriving in South Africa, they meet up with Alan Quatermain, the narrator, and from what I could gather, the main character of the story, who leads the group in their search for the missing brother. Wait, did books used to discover the narrator as a character? <laughs> how does the? Am I just so ignorant about how books work? that I don't understand how you're like, because the narrator's kind of like, John then went into this, then he did that, then he did this. How do you discover that person in chapter three? <laughs> Along the way, they also meet an African man, Mr. Mbopa, who eventually turns out to be Ngozi, the heir to the throne of the fictional Kukuna lands, and in short, they help Ngosi take back his kingdom. They find a treasure believed to be King Solomon's gold in an abandoned mine, and obviously, and toward the end, they actually find the brother too, so I guess happy endings all around. While many people feel that the novel was based on the discovery of the Great Zimbabwe ruins, which we'll come back to later, Ryder Haggard himself denied this. However, considering that Ryder Haggard served in South Africa and the book at the shelves around 10 years after the discovery of Great Zimbabwe, it's hard to imagine that the discovery didn't influence him at all. It definitely made waves in South Africa and abroad at this time. As every artist can tell you, what's happening around you tends to influence your work, regardless of whether you're writing a book, a poem, a song, or painting a picture, uh, or making a YouTube video. <laughs> this is art. Please, come on. I've not read the book myself, so I can't really comment on whether it's a good story or not. Initially, I wanted to start this script with an insightful quote from the novel, but after looking up some quotes online, I rewrote my introduction. <laughs> so I guess it wasn't very good then. Make of that what you will. <laughs> I made of that that the book's not very good. However, considering all the movie adaptations that followed, I can say with confidence that the book was very popular. There was even a sequel. The book is obviously fiction. At no point did the author suggest that any of it was even loosely based on facts. To the contrary, actually. Yet despite this, the novel gave Gave birth to a whole new unsolved mystery king solomon's lost minds do you think in like a hundred years people are going to be like and now we are searching for hogwarts <laughs> yeah it's like i mean i hope not i assume not but people are really dumb like is there like the yeah king solomon's minds they're based on this fictional book which the author specifically said was fiction it's also obviously fiction is a made-up story <laughs> it's in the fiction section the treasures of King Solomon. An important figure in the quest for the mines is, well, King Solomon, since the mines are supposed to be his. So who was King Solomon? Oh, thank God we're getting this explained because I'm so small brain. Solomon is an important figure in the Abrahamic faiths as well as Rastafarianism. Apparently, Haile Selassie, a religious figure in the Rastafarian faith, was a descendant of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Wait, but Haile Selassie's a real person. It... I've made a video about Haile Selassie, so I, I have a vague remembrance that he's some dude and then some religion Rastafarians, right? Were like, 
he is the savior or whatever something like that right i can't believe i made a video about this and i can't remember it at all that's highly selassie for you it's not i guess it's not important look if it's important Tills is going to explain it to us according to the bible solomon was the second and last king of a united israel and the son of king david and bathsheba he was probably born around uh 1010 bce and it's believed that he ruled around 970 to 931 bce under his rule israel grew from a city-state to a small empire that dominated the middle east for at least four decades his reign was considered a golden age for ancient israel when solomon took the throne he prayed to god and asked for wisdom to rule his kingdom the lord impressed with solomon's request blessed him with both wisdom and wealth <laughs> please give me the power to run my kingdom well <laughs> it's like the most simple prayer ever god's like wow insightful here's some uh, here's some money and wisdom dear god help me run my youtube channel as well <laughs> yes simon here's some knowledge and money <laughs> which is kind of what i actually do collect while making these videos because people write me scripts and i gain knowledge and money from the advertising wow god you answered my prayers you are real i should pray more solomon then proceeded to collect some wives and is best known today for his wisdom his wealth and his 700 wives and 300 concubines holy shit solomon you fucking demon jesus that's a lot that can get expensive quickly so it's a good thing he had gold according to all his desire if the old testament is to be believed some estimates suggest that by the time of his death had accumulated 500 tons of gold he had drinking cups of gold 300 gold shields and his throne in jerusalem was made of gold and ivory 500 tons of gold let's say he's using metric tons i mean he's obviously not but i don't know what a regular ton is that's five hundred thousand kilograms and gold is worth what like fifty thousand a kilo so what's five hundred thousand times fifty thousand my small brain's not gonna be able to work that out hey siri what's five hundred thousand times fifty thousand say that again siri but what he either said 25 million or 25 billion i think it's probably billion right it doesn't matter let's move on on the steps leading to the throne there were 12 life-size golden lions facing 12 golden eagles along with the gold he also had more silver and copper than one man could ever use solomon was a busy man as a writer he contributed to the book of proverbs the song of songs and ecclesiastes in the hebrew bible how did he have time for all of this shit? he's got like a thousand wives or like a thousand women <laughs> solomon how do you manage it apparently he also wrote songs poetry histories and some scientific works however none of these works have ever been recovered when he wasn't writing he was building a palace harbors towns and stables big enough to house his thousands of horses and chariots there are even rumors that he was involved with the hanging gardens of babylon holy shit, solomon i feel like i'm busy i run some youtube channels and i have a wife and kids and i'm like that literally takes up all of my time i don't have any hobbies solomon how do you do this <laughs> oh i get it yeah it's because it's not real ah king solomon's greatest achievement construction wise and probably what he's best known for was the temple of god in jerusalem built to house the ark of the covenant it was constructed mainly from stone with cedar paneling which was then overlaid with gold the inside of the temple was decorated with elaborate carvings golden lampshades and altar of incense also known as the golden altar and two bronze pillars among other things and the outer doors were made of ivory sadly the temple was destroyed in 587 bce by the babylonians when nebuchadnezzar conquered jerusalem all the gold silver and precious stones were probably looted and returned to babylon at this time i know i just said that king solomon wasn't real and all that so i didn't really mean that he wasn't real i'm just like that's obvious exaggeration here did he really have 700 wives did he really i mean maybe he did people were crazy in the in the past and maybe he's just like yeah i had 700 wives i just met them once <laughs> 
By all accounts, Solomon was a very successful king. He expanded the royal court and set up trade agreements with other powerful nations such as Egypt, Moab, Tyre, and Arabia, and controlled trade routes from Edom, Arabia, India, Africa, and Judea. These profitable alliances were usually strengthened through marriage, hence all the wives. Yeah, but once you've got, like, wife 699, and you're moving on to wife 700 to, like, improve diplomatic relations with some country aren't they gonna be like yeah but you've already got 699 wives so what's the real value in this are we really taking this seriously anymore solomon are you gonna even see your wife again one of the most famous relationships was with the queen of sheba while we don't know for certain where sheba was it's speculated that it might have been modern day yemen other theories say the queen of sheba was from ethiopia <laughs> the only thing i know about yemen is it's where chandler said he was gonna go to in friends to get away from um was it Janice? <laughs> Where he's like, I'm moving to Yemen. <laughs> is anyone from Yemen <laughs> watching? Let me know in the comments below. Where is Yemen? <laughs> Other theories say the Queen of Sheba was from Ethiopia. The Queen visited Israel with gifts, including gold. She was deeply impressed by the King's wisdom and all he accomplished, and the two started a relationship which may have led to a son. This is going to come up again later. Despite his great wisdom and initial success as a ruler, things went downhill later in life. He turned away from God, instead worshipping the false gods of his many men. Many wives. God was apparently not happy with this state of affairs, and Solomon lost the protection and favor of God, which led to political unrest. Solomon finally died around 931 BCE, aged 80. Shit, man, you're doing well for some dude in the past. His son, Rehoboam, inherited the throne, and this quickly led to a civil war that ended the United Kingdom of Israel around 930 BCE. The Golden Age of Israel had passed. Was King Solomon real? Outside of the Bible, there is no archaeological evidence that King Solomon was ever real. We know enough about archaeology to know that any kingdom that size with that level of organization would have left behind some evidence of its existence, but alas, nothing has ever been found. Yeah, okay, so I'm going back to my theory that it's not real. One theory states that David and Solomon were renowned tribal chiefs rather than all-powerful kings, and the true size and significance of their united Israel was a teeny tiny bit exaggerated. <laughs> exaggerated to the point where archaeologists instead of being like we should definitely know there was a giant kingdom to being like we have detected nothing Egypt is very good at keeping records, and despite Solomon being married to the pharaoh of Egypt's daughter, which I reckon is something fairly important, there are no records in Egypt mentioning King Solomon or this marriage to the royal daughter. So Solomon either never existed or the real Solomon has very little resemblance to the king described in the Bible. Historian Ralph Ellis spent 20 years researching the tale of King Solomon in search of these elusive mines. Since no archaeological evidence of Solomon or his kingdom has ever been found, Ellis came to the conclusion that the the story was just a misinterpretation of historical texts. Instead of powerful Israelite kings, David and Solomon were the pharaohs. Oh my lord. Susenes II and his successor, Shosenk I, a name we'll be hearing <laughs> and mispronouncing again, where, whose empire included both Israel and Egypt by the 10th century BCE. Since stories of pharaohs weren't considered acceptable by biblical authors, they changed the story to create an Israelite hero, King Solomon. Ah, yes, writing the Bible. Oh, look at this historical fact. Let's just change that to fit our narrative a little bit. And I mean, that... I say, like, his by authors of the Bible, but there's also, like, authors of history. <laughs> a long period of history. And uh, arguably, even at some points today, like, the victors write the history books. I do feel historians are a lot more sensible and serious today, though. They're like, well, we do, you know, like, historians who are taken seriously at, like, academic institutions and stuff. They're like, well, we have to uh, find, you know, such things as evidence, as peer review. <laughs> Whereas in the past, Herodotus, he's like, I shall just take my bestest of guesses. 
The treasures of Solomon aren't missing. They can be found on display at the museum in Cairo. Ellis claims that there are plenty of similarities between the two pharaohs and the two biblical kings, including ancestors and family members. He also claims that if we accept that the two were pharaohs, the inconsistencies in the biblical account are suddenly explainable. Unfortunately, he doesn't really go into detail in any of the articles that I read. Fortunately, he did write a whole book about it if anyone is interested in learning more. However, I should probably point out that his theory isn't widely accepted or taken very seriously by pretty much anyone. While there is no proof for Solomon specifically, there are some suggestions that the House of David and some kind of organized kingdom might have existed around the same time as Solomon and David. In 1828, Jean-Francois Champollion, that's the guy that discovered the Rosetta Stone, Wow, okay. Found a list of peoples defeated by Pharaoh Shosenk I inscribed at the Temple of Amun in Thebes. Thebes? Thebes. Thebes, right? I think it's Thebes. On this list are people from the highlands or heights of David. This would have occurred under the rule of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. This suggests that Pharaoh Shosenk I from Egypt is the same King Shishak of Egypt mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. Then in 1993, Avraham Baran discovered the Tel Dan inscription on a broken steel in northern Israel. It commemorates the victory of an um, uh, Aramean king over the king of Israel and the king of the house of david however the steel dates to a century after david at this time israel was ruled by slightly less impressive kings such as amir and ahan <laughs> you gotta be disappointed like these two guys were kings of like a kingdom obviously simon's big brain uh, but it's like the note in the video today is just they were less impressive is that less impressive kings like charles the second oh my god i don't know which king version he is He's like, he's gonna, he's just gonna be like, historians in 100 years are gonna be like, yeah, the follow up king who didn't rule for very long, wasn't as popular, and uh, like, the queen was pretty chill. Like, she was, I'm, I'm no fan of the royal, royal family, but like, if we're ranking monarchs, Charles II or whatever the fuck he is, no, it's Charles III. Charles that I don't give a fuck, is gonna like rank below Elizabeth II by some way. Not that anyone should care. It's possible that the Arameans wanted to brag a little bit about conquering Israel, so they added a name that carried a little more importance. The House of David. No, no proof of King Solomon, but some suggestions that the House of David, at least, was real. In 2010 and 2012, archaeologist Elliot Mazar discovered ancient structures in Jerusalem dating back to the time of Solomon. In what appeared to be a wall between the, temp between the Temple Mounds and the neighborhood of Silwan today, the team uncovered an earthenware jug with the earliest alphabetical letters written on it. There's no reference to either David or Solomon, but it does suggest an advanced society with a fully functioning government collecting taxes during the period of Solomon's reign. Nothing screams civilization like taxes. <laughs> the theory got a little more support when six clay seals were found at the archaeological site of Kirbet Sameli in Israel in 2014. These seals were used in the same way as wax seals in later periods. The site is a small village, not exactly a metropolis, but official documents still made its way out there. This suggests some government activity in the 10th century BCE, a time no kingdom should have existed in the region according to the clever people. Still no time at Sign of Solomon, though. Yeah, it's like, okay, this was interesting, so this existed. And, like, stories are often partly based on truth 
and i don't think just discovering evidence oh i guess it does kind of like so king solomon could be real but he's not the king solomon that exists in the account of the bible or whatever he's just some other dude who is just so exaggerating all of this stuff you know it's like like take james bond for example i was recently reading about ian fleming and it's like he based james bond on somewhat of his own experience and then he looked at some i think there was some actor around the time and he was like and that's what james bond looks like and it doesn't mean that james bond is real it just means that he's sort of based on a couple of people mashed together into like one fictional character the same thing happens today the same thing happened in the past i don't think it's like that complicated although i'm sure archaeologists will be like simon you've you've just vastly underestimated the whole thing but it's kind of it's kind of got that vibe right this is the vibe a best these finds suggest an organized kingdom at the time of solomon and david and if you're really optimistic maybe the existence of david however there's no evidence of solomon or substantial proof of a united israelite kingdom as big as important as described in the bible exactly according to archaeologist israel finkelstein israel wasn't this magnificent kingdom jerusalem was barely inhabited at the time and david and solomon were or more than important chieftains of local bedouin tribes so not likely to have golden palaces the exaggeration in the bible probably the result of judean authors trying to upsell their kingdom in the ongoing rivalry with the kingdom of israel to the north yeah so and also add into that that if you like make your fictionalized character more awesome it makes your actual history look awesome and boom there you go easy that's what's going on very long way around to get to I guess that's, you know, I'm at that conclusion now. That's why it also led me down this path. There we go. Happy. Where did Solomon's wealth come from? The argument about whether Solomon was real is an interesting one, but that's not why you're here. So, for the sake of this script, we'll assume that Solomon was real, because without Solomon, the whole story kind of ends here. Yeah, but is rich Solomon real? I think, like, broke-ass tribal chief Solomon is real, and he probably didn't have 500 tons of gold and 700 wives. It's like... <laughs> If I was telling a story about myself, it's like, no, 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 yeah, yeah, no, I did these YouTube channels, 7,000 YouTube channels. Uh, I actually bought YouTube. That's... <laughs> and people in a thousand years being like, wow, it must be true because he wrote it down on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, look, I know we're only a third of the way through, but I'm already like, none of this is real. There's no, there's no solid, there's no, there's no gold. But let's carry on because we've got an episode to do i don't think i'm going to become any less skeptical there as you go through have i the bible describes solomon as a merchant king and a large chunk of his wealth came from a fear if you don't know where that is you're not alone a fear is as much a mystery as king solomon's minds elsa i don't know where fucking yemen is so i am definitely not going to know where a fear is for the longest time, I had it in my mind. Like, nah, it's too embarrassing to share. I'm not even going to say what country. I feel like, you know, when they ask Americans on the street, uh, it's like, I know, and I know it's always cut down to just so that show the dumbest people. And they're like, point to Australia on a map. And they're like pointing to South America or something. This is that level of embarrassing that I'm not going to even share what country I thought was in a completely different continent. Until maybe I, I, I must have been like, at least a young adult i must have been in my early 20s and then that country started appearing in the news more and i was like oh that country's not there <laughs> oh my god it's really embarrassing i'm not gonna say don't ask me in the comments and don't ask me in reddit because i'm not gonna tell you jesus it's more embarrassing than not knowing where yemen is i'll tell you that like you probably don't know where yemen is if you're listening maybe you're from yemen let me know this is much more embarrassing than that it's not like not knowing where australia is though it's not that embarrassing but it's pretty embarrassing <laughs> 
We know that every voyage to Ophir started at the Red Sea port of Ezion Gerber. Unfortunately, we don't really know where Ezion Gerber was either. I'm beginning to pick up a theme in this script. Before King Solomon's Mines was published, explorers were looking for Ophir. After the book hit the shelves, enthusiasts started looking for the mines which may or may not have been in Ophir. So, what do we know about Ophir? According to the Bible, Ophir was a land renowned for its gold and other precious trade goods. Solomon entered into a trade agreement with Hiram, the Phoenician king of Tyre, and the two collected large quantities of gold, silver, ivory, and precious stones, as well as apes, peacocks, and algum wood, which Solomon used in constructing his temple. He used the wood and stones not the peacocks. We're not really sure what algum wood was, but scholars think it was probably an aromatic type of wood like sandalwood. The ivory, peacocks, and apes suggest that Ophir was most likely located in India or Africa. While we may have some doubts about Solomon, the Phoenicians were definitely real. Yes, they were. I've made many video about Phoenicia has come up many, many times. They were considered among the greatest traders and explorers of the ancient world, and they had commercial outposts throughout the Mediterranean. It's accepted that they probably explored and traded with nations in the Atlantic and Indian Oceans as well. Some believe they even reached the Americas. Unfortunately, this doesn't really narrow down the location of Ophir. According to Herodotus, a Greek historian in the 5th century BCE, a Phoenician expedition had circumnavigated Africa in a three-year voyage. If this is true, though, Herodotus was a little doubtful himself. Ophir could be almost anywhere. While doing research, I came across a rather interesting theory. Solomon's ancestors had fled from Egypt. Considering his wisdom, it's possible that he combined his ancestral knowledge of Egyptian sub-Saharan trade routes with the experienced Phoenician fleet to reach the land of Ophir. Solomon also had trade agreements with basically everyone and their canary. Control of the trade routes for whatever came back from Ophir would have made Solomon an incredibly wealthy and influential ruler. This is all very speculative, though, isn't it? Apparently, much like Solomon, Ophir is only mentioned in the Bible, but that didn't stop people from looking. You Ptolemus, a Jewish historian, believed Ophir was an island in the Red Sea, while Josephus, another Jewish historian, placed Ophir in India between the tributaries of the Indus River and China. Ptolemy, an astronomer and geographer, not the pharaoh, placed Ophir at the mouth of the Indus River, today known as Pakistan, or alternatively near the Straits of Malacca between Malaysia and Indonesia. That's two very different places. <laughs> Pakistan is not near Malaysia and Indonesia. Like, sometimes my geography might be embarrassingly bad, but I know those places are quite distant. Everybody's favorite explorer, Christopher Columbus. Like, I don't think the guys, there's not many people who are like today, like, yeah, yeah, those explorers back in the day, you know, <laughs> great guys. No, they were, that didn't work out very well. He also wanted some of the Ophir action. Of course he did. Columbus studied the Bible, along with other ancient sources such as Josephus, extensively looking for clues to guide him to Ophir and Tarshish, another city mentioned in the Bible, and a possible source of trade. Columbus assumed that Ophir and Tarshish were probably the same place, and based on his research, Ophir was in India or China. China, perhaps an island that Marco Polo had learned of during his travels to China, today known as Japan. However, I would like to point out that Marco Polo also saw dragons in China, so maybe not the most reliable source. <laughs> it's historians, though. In the past, they were like, just spice things up a little bit, make it a little bit more interesting. Columbus figured that since it took three years to reach Ophir, the Asian continent was much bigger than believed, so the ocean was smaller. If he traveled west rather than east, he could reach Ophir and Tarshish in a matter of weeks. Arguing points for optimism, but perhaps not for geography. Either way, he hopped on his boat, and even though the journey took a tad bit longer than he expected, he finally found Ophir. As it turned out, it found Hispaniola, today Haiti, and the Dominican Republic. Not exactly India or China, Christopher. <laughs> Christopher Columbus, for being so famous, he was kind of a bit shit, wasn't he? 
After spending a decade searching for gold, it became clear that he hadn't actually found a fear and all at all, and he was sent back to Spain. Undeterred by this setback, he decided that he had been looking in the wrong place. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Obviously, you didn't find it. It's like I was looking for my glasses. Did you find them? Nah, it turns out I was looking in the wrong place. Fucking stating the obvious. What are you talking about? No kidding. Somehow, he managed to convince the Spanish monarchs to give him another shot, and in 1502, he set off on his fourth and final journey across the ocean. This time, instead of finding a fear, he found Central America. <laughs> That's a bit of a shit explorer. I mean, I guess it's obvious. Like, now we're like, yeah, Christopher Columbus is a bit shit. But he really was, wasn't he? A Spanish expedition led by Alvaro de Mendana, a nephew of the Peruvian viceroy, discovered the source of Solomon's gold, or so he believed, on a chain of islands not far from what is now New Guinea. Today, the islands are known as the Solomon Islands. The Portuguese, however, turned their sights to Africa for reasons that will become apparent once we look at Zimbabwe, while the English opted for searching Arabia, East Africa, and India. John Milton, in his poem Paradise Lost, identifies the port of Safala in Mozambique as a fear, and Sir Walter Raleigh was convinced that he had discovered a fear in Suriname. Other Locations considered to be a fear include modern-day Panama, Peru, Armenia, Amman, Ceylon, Indonesia, Sumatra, India, Pakistan, the Philippines, and Burma. <laughs> so it's like somewhere in India, they're just dead, somewhere there, somewhere there, and also West West Asia. That is just it's a huge area that they kind of it's like it's somewhere in the world. Is it though? <laughs> Mozambique has always been a popular option. Thomas Lopez, a Portuguese explorer, was convinced that a fair was in Mozambique after spending a winter there with Vasco da Gama and James Bruce in his 1790 book Travels to Discover the Source of the Nile, and he also made, which also made a strong case for Mozambique. Modern scholars feel that a fear had to be closer to Israel, possibly on the coast of Pakistan, southern India, northern Sri Lanka, northern Sri Lanka or southwest Arabia around modern Yemen. Guys, you are guessing all over the show. However, there's no indication that Solomon owned any mines in Afir or that he had any control over Afir. He only traded with them. It's an interesting side quest, but it doesn't actually bring us any closer to King Solomon's mines. Possible locations of Solomon's mines. So, other than the Bible, we have no proof that Solomon was real. The mines aren't mentioned in the Bible at all. The only place mentioned as a source for Solomon's wealth is a fear. Is it just me, or is this mystery unraveling really fast? Oh, Elsa, this mystery unraveled in like the first three lines of today's episode. But we've gotten this far, so let's press on and take a look at some locations that are people all giddy with excitement because they believe they'd found King Solomon's mines. Let's first consider the possible inspiration for the book that started the whole thing. The Great Zimbabwe Ruins. Great Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is the Shona word for stone houses, and the ruins of Great Zimbabwe are located around 30 kilometers southwest of Masvingo in Zimbabwe. The ruins are considered to be the most extensive ruins in sub-Saharan Africa and consist of three sections. The hill complex, also known as the Acropolis, the Valley Ruins, and the Great Enclosure. The complex covers around 1,779 acres and at its height in the 14th century housed a population of around 18,000 people. It's also surrounded by gold mines. You can see where all this is heading. The hill complex is the oldest part of the site. According to UNESCO, it is probably the royal city, and it was built between 1100 and 1600. Bird figurines carved from soapstone found on the eastern side of the hill complex suggest the people of Great Zimbabwe worshipped bird-like gods. The Great Enclosure is built in the form of an ellipsis and dates around the 14th century. Under the wall of the Great Enclosure, fragments of drainage wood dated to between 591 and 702 CE were found, so the wall might 
had been built on a much older foundation. The valley ruins appear to have been the main living area, with living ensembles scattered throughout the valley. The first person credited with the discovery of Great Zimbabwe is German geologist Karl Mauch, who, dis- who rediscovered the ruins in 1871. He had been commissioned by the Transvaal government to chart the area between the Limpopo and Zambezi rivers, and upon discovering gold in Mashonaland and along the Tati River, he decided that he had found the biblical land of fear. So, with the help of Alexander Marensky, a German missionary who'd published a story about the Zimbabwe ruins in 1865 after hearing about it from some of the native peoples and a man named Adam Render, Mao set off to find Zafir. Some articles claim that Adam Render, a German elephant hunter, had actually visited the ruins in 1867, which means the credit for finding the ruins should probably go to him. I'm making assumptions here, but considering that Render had married a Shona woman and lived among the tribe, he, he probably had much more respect for the culture and history of his wife's people. Had he known the circus that would ensue, he might not have taken Mauch anywhere near the ruins. Mauch got permission from the king of the Nedabele to enter the territory, claiming that he wanted to hunt. So the first step in finding the biblical city uh, was to lie about it. We're off to a great start. <laughs> yeah, this is this can't be new though. Like white European dude goes looking for gold in Africa, lies about it. <laughs> Shocking news! When Mao finally found the ruins, he concluded that they were a copy of the house in which the Queen of Sheba stayed during a visit to Solomon in Jerusalem, suggesting a link not only to Solomon but to the Queen of Sheba. Did he have any evidence to back that up? Really? According to Mauch, the Queen of Sheba was the ruler of Great Zimbabwe. Since the local tribes used clay, wood, and dried grass for building material, Mauch decided that the stone structure was completely out of place and therefore the native peoples couldn't possibly have built it. Ah, some classic racism that is like the pyramids must be built by aliens because how could these primitives build them they can't build that in their small brains small inferior racially inferior brains of course his conclusion was that Great Zimbabwe had been built by the Phoenician workers the Queen had hired to get the job done. He discovered some wooden beams in one of the doorways and promptly identified it as cedar. How? I don't know, which could only have come from Lebanon, and Solomon was known to have used cedar extensively in his own building projects. What is it? Is it hard to identify wood? That doesn't seem like a stretch. An archaeologist, this man was not. He published his findings, taking most of the credit. However, Mauch and Renza weren't the first Europeans to discover Great Zimbabwe. In the 16th century, Portuguese explorers mentioned the ruins of an ancient city in the interior of Africa, which they called Simbawi. These tales were part of the inspiration for Mauch in the first place. Getting a job to chart the area was just a nice bonus, but Mauch had heard stories about the ruins well before he set off on his exploration of Africa. What is interesting is that these initial explorers made no connection between the ruins and Solomon. After visiting Great Zimbabwe in 1506, they accepted that the city had been built by the native Shona peoples. The city's abandonment wasn't entirely in the ancient past just yet. It was still in the living memory of some inhabitants of the Monomatapa kingdom that now included Great Zimbabwe. Well into the 1500s, Muslim trade fairs were still held at Great Zimbabwe, and it was these merchants that first connected Great Zimbabwe with the biblical fear they i feel like people in the past were just really keen to like associate rumors and semi-remembered stuff with like real places and i know we do that today we're like yeah let's try and find this place that was there and it's like i don't know it's it doesn't seem just it doesn't always seem very likely like 
you got it they, they never seem to really find solid or they don't often seem to find really solid evidence they're just like it must be this place because of this and it's like it's very circumstantial they linked the name Ophir phonetically to the nearby mount fuhrer possibly uh, what is today known as mount darwin so while mao took the credit for finding great zimbabwe he really didn't all he did was pave the way for its exploitation as the rumors of gold and treasure meant a host of treasure hunters hoping to get some of solomon's sweet riches for themselves and of course doing a lot of damage to the ruins another firm believer in the solomon theory was german explorer carl peters after getting fired from a colonial administrative position in tanganyika for accidentally using the death penalty oh my god is that what you ah, accidentally i didn't mean to it's like whoops <laughs> firing squad how you accidentally use the death penalty is a mystery all by itself but he set his sights on the gold mining business in rhodesia he felt that germany had dropped the ball when they didn't rush in to colonize the area after mao fellow german discovered the ruins he claimed that the root word for Afia and africa was the same and wrote a book based on his expedi- expedition of Marshallland named the el dorado of the ancients the book was mostly dismissed as just another travel book and didn't sell particularly well according to peters the phoenicians who had a trade agreement with solomon traded gold in the area and later colonized the region along with the sabaeans another ancient group mentioned in the bible as well as the israelites he also made the connection between mount fuhrer and Ophir and described mount fuhrer as such even the fancy of rider haggard could not have depicted a site more mysterious than the entrance into this ancient and fabulous el dorado it's not clear if he actually went into the mountain and what he found if he did personally I just think he made it up but he goes even further and describes some of the native peoples in the region as having distinct jewish type faces and stated that the women reminded him of european ladies when compared to the other native women i will not be repeating his incredibly disrespectful description of the other native women of course his team also spotted all those goods that arrived from a fear he tried to convince investors that the mines were still full of gold and but that was about as successful as the book so in the end his search for a just cost him a lot of money the first archaeologist who visited the site was james theodore bent of the british association of science sponsored by cecil john rhodes you might have heard of him yeah cecil rhodes isn't he the um rhodes rhodesia what was this he's like some important historical dude like some colonizer or some shit like that bent was an expert on middle eastern antiquity and along with his wife who was a photographer made a detailed study of the ruins he was the first to name the ruins great zimbabwe now sources disagree a little some depict him as a typical colonist he stated that the ruins had been built by a more civilized race possibly arab or phoenician traders presenting the usual the locals couldn't possibly have built this argument so popular with colonists throughout history some sources also claim that he tossed away valuable artifacts and did a lot of damage others depict bent as a solid archaeologist who never mentioned solomon and refused to give him an opinion on the affair question stating that there simply wasn't enough proof either way he removed some of the important artifacts like the soap carvings which was later donated to the the south african museum in cape town how generous <laughs> why you couldn't take them back to the british museum where they belong time for me to repeat my favorite joke <laughs> why are the great pyramids not in the british museum because they wouldn't fit ah 
While he's criticized for this, it's lucky that he removed those artifacts before the ancient ruins company was given commission by Cecil John Rhodes. Yes, that guy again to exploit the Rhodesian ruins. And exploit they did. They didn't just pillage Great Zimbabwe, but other Iron Age sites as well, carting off anything of value and throwing away what they couldn't sell, some of it valuable artifacts. The ancient ruins company weren't the only ones doing damage. Richard Hall, initially appointed to preserve the ruins, launched his own excavation despite having no archaeological training and did so much damage that he was eventually fired. Getting fired for damaging a ruin that's literally getting looted all the time is quite the achievement. Thankfully, more excavations by better trained and more considerate archaeologists followed, and most of them came to the same conclusion, a conclusion that didn't sit well with old Cecil John Rhodes. In 1905, David Randall McIver, an Egyptologist, visited the ruins and concluded that the ruins must have been built by the local Shona peoples after uncovering some artifacts similar to those used by the people in the area. Oh, what a shocking conclusion. He also stated that the ruins weren't ancient. They'd been built between the 11th and 15th century, placing them in the Middle Ages well after the time of Solomon. <laughs> wow, they got things really wrong. <laughs> they finally get a guy. All these people are showing up. There's people looting. There's avatar archaeologists. There's idiots. And they're all like, wow, look at all this shit. Let's steal it and break some stuff. And then a real archaeologist comes along and he's like, yeah, it's from the Middle Ages. It's not even that old. There's no Solomon's mines here. This is a valuable shit, but it's already been stolen and everything's wrecked. Thanks, everybody. Great work. In 1929, Gertrude Cat and Thomas's team, entirely female, also visited the ruins and came to the same conclusions as Randall McIver. The ruins were distinctly African, no sign of Solomon or a fear. And at this point, oh my god, what a surprise! <laughs> This didn't go down well with Cecil John Rhodes, who had his own reasons for keeping the belief in a fear and the connection between Great Zimbabwe and King Solomon alive. Part of the British justification for their very profitable presence in Africa was bringing civilization to the backwards Africans. Their words, not mine. Suddenly their presence was a lot harder to justify. On top of that, the Witwatersrand gold rush in 1886 in South Africa made a lot of people very rich, and Rhodes was hoping for another gold rush in Rhodesia, which never happened. Some critics even wanted openly if Rhodes would ever stop inventing new affairs in order to tempt his investors. So I guess not a happy ending to the mystery for old Cecil John. I guess not, but also, he's kind of running his own little grift there, isn't he? Because he's like, yeah, maybe Can Solomon's minds are real. Maybe this is the affair place, and maybe this is, you know, maybe this is related. Give me some money and we'll go on and do some investment. I'll leave a really plush life on your money while we look for gold that probably isn't there. It sounds like Cecil John has got the grift right. He's like selling the, the, the shovels and the pickaxes. Not the, He's not looking for gold himself. At the time it was found, Great Zimbabwe was considered to be the only ruin of its kind, which is why the Europeans couldn't understand how a culture with no history building with stone could build a city like Great Zimbabwe. However, since then, more than 150 ruins have been uncovered throughout Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and the northern parts of South Africa. So not only were stone cities in Africa not at all uncommon, they were built by locals and had absolutely nothing to do with Solomon and his mines. Okay, now I feel like I was giving the people who were, you know, being like, they couldn't possibly have built this! I'm, I was saying, like, it feels a bit racist, doesn't it? And, you know, a bit like um, uh, superior race thinking that these other, like, natives can't do this. But to be fair to them, this was the only one, and throughout history, uh, at the time, at the time, that was what they had knowledge of, that everything else wasn't built like that. So I can kind of see why they would think that without them having to be racist, although they probably also were, because <laughs> it was the past. But I could see why 
you could draw that conclusion because it's the only one and obviously later on they discovered many more and now we have a different conclusion when rhodesia finally fell and gained its independence it was renamed zimbabwe after the great zimbabwe ruins and the ruins were declared a world heritage site in 1986. the copper mines in the timna valley this time there are proper mines involved not just ruins and some convenient gold mines in the same area that later turned out to be from the middle ages rather than the time of king solomon in the time of solomon copper was a valuable commodity probably what oil is today so was the source of king solomon's wealth copper now before we dive into this bit there have been a lot of excavations happening in this area for almost a hundred years now so keeping track of who dug where became a little confusing i'm not familiar with the area and i couldn't find a map that showed all of the locations i needed so i just had to compare different maps from some a little older than others to try and figure out all of it if i'm off a bit on my descriptions i apologize in advance for any confusion don't worry i already forgive you in 1934 nelson gluck a rabbi and archaeologist from ohio came across what he thought was solomon's mines at a site called tel el khalifa in the araba desert 500 meters from the northern shore of the gulf of Aqaba. This site was strewn with fistite chunks of black rock, the slag left behind when copper is extracted from ore. Pottery shards uncovered at the site dated back 3,000 years, placing the ancient copper mines in the same time of King Solomon. Definitely not the Middle Ages. Glue came to the conclusion that Solomon's mines weren't actually gold mines, but rather copper mines. According to the Bible, Solomon built a fleet of ships at the port of Ezion Gerber near Alath on the shore of the Red Sea, from where the fleet sailed to Afir. As we stated earlier, Tel El Khalifa is 500 meters from the northern shore of the Gulf of Aqaba. Gluck concluded that Tal al Khalifa was the settlement of Ezion Gerber and the port was still hidden in the desert waiting to be found. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, me neither. A port in the desert? <laughs> <laughs> pretty sure ports need water but apparently building a port city away from the actual ocean wasn't uncommon <laughs> okay however he later revised his theory deciding that ezion gerber was the name of the port alath was the name of the town and tel el khalifa was actually the ancient settlement of alath which makes a lot more sense at the northwest corner of the site were the ruins of a large square building initially gluck thought this was where the smelting took place however there wasn't enough slag around to support that so gluck figured out that the actual smelting of the ore probably occurred near the mines themselves located deeper in the Arab desert but the final casting and refining was done at Tel El Khalifa if Solomon was trading copper for gold silver and peacocks in a fear it would make sense that the port from which the ship sailed would be close to the source of the copper things went a little sideways 30 years later though when Benno Rothenberg who had previously been Glurk's assistant and photographer during the first round of excavations returned to the site leading his own expedition Rothenberg was more interested in dating the local mining and smelting activities and he was wondering why the bible would mention Ezion gerber but leave out the large-scale mining operations that occurred in the area in 1969 rothenberg began to excavate near a rock formation dubbed solomon's pillars close to the actual mines around 30 kilometers away from tel el khalifa uh, here they made a discovery that threw all theories of this being solomon's mines into question an egyptian temple dedicated to hathor the egyptian goddess of sex drugs and rock and roll according to colonel jack o'neill complete with hieroglyphic instructions from the book of the dead and some cat figurines i like that elsa is a stargate sg1 fan <laughs> I didn't know that, and that is awesome. <laughs> 
The temple predated Solomon's reign by a few centuries. Based on more artifacts found later, including jewelry, it became clear that the miners had belonged to the Egyptians and were possibly the great copper mines in the lands of Attica mentioned by Ramesses III. So the new theory was that the Egyptian mines were shut down after the Egyptian Empire collapsed around the 12th century BCE. The mines weren't active in Solomon's time, and mining only resumed about a millennium later with the rise of Rome. If the theory of Solomon's mines was the Titanic, the Egyptian temple was the iceberg oh it wasn't the ta- <laughs> it wasn't the titanic it was like barely a ghost ship at this point because it's not real however don't although it's amazing that people i guess it's just greed you know people want to find they want to believe it's like people want to win the lottery it's about as likely as solomon's mind being real except someone is going to win the lottery whereas this would be like playing non-existent lottery it would be like writing six numbers down on a piece of toilet paper flushing it down the toilet and then hoping that you're somehow going to win the lottery with that this ridiculous but people will still hope However, don't give up on our biblical king just yet. We're going to take a quick detour to neighboring Jordan and the site of Kibbut N. Nahas, about 100 kilometers away from the Timna Valley and the work of Thomas Levy and Muhammad Jar. While it's not strictly part of the site uncovered by Nelson Gluck, which we'll be coming back to shortly, Levy considered the mining operations he had been excavating to be part of the extended mining network in the area. The evidence collected by Levy's team suggested that mining operations on this site started 300 years later than originally assumed. For those keeping score, this places us back in the 10th century BCE and the time of King Solomon. The area is covered by more than 24 acres of black slag, and Levy and his team have excavated through 20 feet of slag, which suggests a sizable mining operation. Oh my god, how much slag is made when you, like, bring copper out of ore? Holy shit. And how long was this going on for? I guess a long-ass time. According to carbon dating of the different layers of charcoal, mining started around 950 BCE and lasted for around 40 or 50 years before being disrupted around 910 BCE. Egyptian artifacts found at the site were dated to the time of Pharaoh Shosenk I and his invasion of Israel and Palestine, starting around 925 BCE after the death of Solomon. Records from Egypt support the biblical accounts of an invasion and the occupation of the city of Hazeva, about 13 kilometers away from the mine, so artifacts at the mines confirm both the Bible and Egyptian records of an invasion of Israel by Egypt during a time that, according to Rothenberg's theory, the mines weren't in operation. Solomon used brass in the temple, an alloy of copper and tin, and while the Bible doesn't state where specifically Solomon's copper came from, it would make sense if the source was inside or at the very least close to his own territory. The copper mines at Kibat and Nahas lie in what would have been southern Edom, and while Edom wasn't part of Solomon's kingdom, he might have had some control over the territory. No real evidence of Solomon, but things are looking up again for our biblical king. So, now we're heading back to the Timna Valley, and that's where the Temple to Hathor was found. And we're skipping ahead to 2009 and the arrival of an expedition led by Erez ben Yosef. At this point, it was still assumed that the Timna Valley was an Egyptian site based on Rothenberg's work. Ben Yosef decided to focus his attention on Slaves Hill, an acropolis named by Nelson Gluck, who initially thought that it was a prison for forced labor as it showed all the trademarks of an Iron Age slave camp, furnaces, harsh desert conditions, and a massive barrier to keep the prisoners in. However, Ben Yosef was the first to do thorough excavations at Slaves Hill. The excavations mostly confirmed what everyone else had been finding. Dozens of furnaces and layers of slag, but this dig uncovered even more. The arid conditions of the Timna Valley are great for preservation, so a whole lot had been preserved waiting for the interdisciplinary 
every team to find bones, seeds, fruits, and even fabric, all suggesting a developed and well organized culture at work. But not an Egyptian culture. Radiocarbon dating, performed on artifacts discovered at the site by the University of Oxford, found the artifacts to be from the 10th century BCE. While the Egyptians were definitely present in the valley on occasion, the Egyptian run smelting activities were on a much smaller scale than assumed by Rothenberg. Instead, the site reached its peak productivity between the 11th and 9th centuries BCE, so closer to the time of David and Solomon. It also turns out that Slaves Hill was not a slave camp, but the home to an elite class. The slaves would have been working in the mines. However, the metal workers at Slaves Hill were responsible for melting the ore and extracting copper. This was one of the most advanced technologies at the time, and it's possible the craftsmen were considered to have magical or supernatural powers. Yeah, if it was the past and I discovered how to do this, I'd be like, how, people would be like, how do you do that? Show us how to do it. I'd be like, what do you mean? It's magic. I just have the talent. Because if you told them how to do it, they'd just do it themselves. But if you don't tell them, then they'll think you're some sort of god, which is good. I mean, I guess. The workers on Slaves Hill were skilled craftsmen, not just menial labor. Based on food remnants discovered at the site, they ate well. Their diet included grains, fruits like figs and grapes, the best cuts of meat, and even fish brought all the way from the Mediterranean. Based on textile fragments, they wore good quality clothing, dyed red, blue, and purple, the most expensive dye in the ancient world. The elite at Slaves Hill dressed according to their status, and that status was high. This means expensive imports, which in turn suggest a complex society capable of long-distance trade. The hilltop was surrounded by advanced military fortifications, which wouldn't have been cheap. Whoever was in charge took expensive measures to protect the copper and the craftsmen extracting the copper. What Gluck assumed to be barricades to keep slaves in were actually walls to keep hostile raiders out. So, what does this have to do? with Solomon and his mines. Well, Israel was involved in a number of military conflicts during the time of King David. One of these was a conflict between the Is- between Israel and the Edomites, the main enemy of Israel in the Arava Valley. A biblical account mentions King David striking down 18,000 enemy soldiers in the Valley of Salt. According to the Bible, David's conquest of Edom was brutal. He killed every male. So if the Bible is correct and David did defeat the Edomites, it's possible that the mines were mined by the Edomites but controlled by David and Solomon. There's no evidence to back this up, but if Jerusalem Jerusalem shared the revenue generated either through military threats or peace treaty and trade agreements, it won't necessarily show up in the archaeological record. And we now know why this region was so important – copper. However, if the Edomites were advanced enough to mine and extract copper and engage in long-distance trade across the desert, why is there no trace of them? There are no structures at the site that you're normally associated with an advanced society like homes, monuments, a cemetery, or a palace. But Ben Yosef has a theory. The Edomites were nomads. They moved with the season, living in tents rather than permanent homes, and by doing that, they essentially made themselves invisible to future archaeologists. If it wasn't for the copper mines they left behind, there wouldn't be any evidence that they existed at all. However, the glaring absence of any reference to the abundance of Edomite copper in the Bible is striking. Ben Yosef suggested that this is deliberate. Tensions between Israel and Edom were high. We're talking religious hatred, and religious hatred led to some horrifying events in history. Since the copper was probably used in the temple, giving it a somewhat sacred quality, the writers of the Bible most likely didn't want to admit the copper came from them unholy Edomites. So the history of the Timur Valley has changed. It appears that the Egyptians were there first, and they built the temple to Hathor based on artifacts found at the site that date to the 13th century BCE. However, the mines only really reached their peak output after the Egyptians left. This period also coincides with the Kingdom of Solomon and its neighbor Edom. While we still don't know who owned these mines, the quality of the food and clothes as well as 
as the mining, smelting, and transport of the copper would have been a complicated and costly affair, so the society responsible, whether they were Israelites or Edomites, had to have been sophisticated, wealthy, and probably powerful. We still don't have proof that we found Solomon's mines, but so far, it's the theory that makes the most sense to me. Solomon traded with Afir, but that doesn't mean his mines were in Afir. Afir was a three-year round trip, so Solomon wasn't trading fresh produce with them. He was probably trading precious metals, I'm guessing copper. If you don't agree with this theory, have no fear. I have a few more up my sleeve, however, be warned, while it might seem impossible, the next two theories are a little bit more fantastical. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know, okay, so it was copper, maybe, if at all. The idea that it's gold and stuff is just like, no, 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 no. Stop looking for it, you're not gonna find it. Stop playing the lottery. Ethiopia. One theory states that the Queen of Sheba didn't actually come from Zimbabwe, but rather a place closer to Israel, Ethiopia. The land of Sheba is as lost to us as Ophir and King Solomon's mines. However, some believe that Solomon and the Queen had a son. Oh, we mentioned this dude earlier. Menelik, who became King Menelik, the first of Ethiopia. Apparently, Solomon wanted to declare Menelik as King of Israel, but Menelik decided to return to Sheba, and in some tales, he took the Ark of the Covenant home with him. <laughs> tales. So there is a link between Ethiopia and Jerusalem, working Solomon's mines and the source of his wealth in Ethiopia. Well, the country certainly is very rich in gold, so it seems as likely a spot as any to find the mystical affair. Travel writer Tahir Shah wrote a book in search of King Solomon's mines exploring the Ethiopian angle. In his book, he mentions visiting the Debradamo Monastery, where he got a look at the Kebra Nagas, written in the 14th century in Ge'ez, the ancient language of Ethiopia. This 700-year-old epic details the story of the Queen of Sheba and Solomon which is sort of the foundation of the Orthodox Ethiopian Church. According to Shah, when he asked the monk translating some of the text for him the location of King Solomon's mines, the monk got hostile, told Shah's guide that the book does indeed hold the answers to Solomon's mines, but it was not to be shared with outsiders, and promptly kicked both Shah and his guide out of the monastery. I read this excerpt from Shah's book, and while I'm not entirely convinced Shah is a good writer and it's an enjoyable read, yeah, it's a travel book, it's a tale, it's the blurring of reality and food. Like, I don't believe this. I just don't believe it. This is, come on. My own research into Kebranagast online doesn't show any mention of King Solomon's mind specifically, so unless one of our viewers has access to the original book and can read Ge'ez, I guess we'll never know if the answers are there. Of course, this theory places Sheba, Afir, and King Solomon's minds all in the same place. Ethiopia. Nothing in the Bible, which is the primary source for Afir and Sheba, even suggests that this could be the same place. While this connection certainly makes for an interesting story, I'm not really sold on the idea. Conclusion. So have we solved the mystery of King Solomon's Mines? In my opinion, there never was a mystery to start with. King Solomon's Mines came from the imagination of a writer who may or may not have based his own story on the discovery of the Great Zimbabwe Ruins. Not even the Bible mentions any mines, and before Ryder Haggard wrote his book, explorers were looking for a fear, not King Solomon's Mines. In fact, outside of the Bible, there's no archaeological record of Solomon or a united monarchy of Israel in the 10th century BCE. Of course, if the Israelites were nomadic, like the Edomites living in tents, they wouldn't have left a trace any more than the Edomites did, but if that was the case, it's unlikely that they had a ruler that built temples and palaces. Now, some parts of the story are factual. The House of David might exist. The Phoenicians were excellent sailors and navigators that traveled all over. However, none of this proves the existence of Solomon, his mines, or a fear. Was Solomon a wise, powerful king, an important chieftain, or a fictional character? Honestly, I don't know. I'd say somewhere in between. Like my personal opinion is like he's not like he's definitely not real as in the king solomon's minds dude but he's probably just like 
That's a semi-fictionalized version of someone from the past. Probably a chieftain. What I do know is that a British author working in the Colonial Service Administration in South Africa, a job that screams bureaucracy if there ever was one, probably got bored, wrote a book about a grand adventure to escape, and ended up creating an unsolved mystery still covered by mystery channels to this day. Getting your book on the bestseller list is great. Creating an unsolved mystery that continues after your death puts you in the same class as Plato, the guy who gave us the tale of Atlantis. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is an achievement worth aspiring to. <laughs> yeah, people will be making videos about you hundreds of years later, even though it's pointless. Thank you so much for watching. If you enjoyed this show, please do give it a rating. If you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.